0: Thank you all so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of Father Arnie, Father Charles, right back there, he's our new assistant director in the Catholic Information Center. It is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight and to introduce Aurora Griffin, author of How I Stayed Catholic at Harvard 40 Tips for Faithful College Students. Aurora is a Harvard graduate, Rhodes Scholar, and devout Catholic who tells you everything you need to know about keeping your faith at a modern university. In her book, Aurora reminds us that keeping the faith is a conscious decision reinforced by commitment and daily practices. Tonight, Aurora will share her practical tips relating to academics, community, prayer, and service that helped her remain a faithful Catholic, even in the most secular environment. And with that, please welcome me and joining in welcoming Ms. Aurora Griffin.
1: Good evening, everybody. Can, can you hear me? Is my mic on? Yes? Okay, good. I'm so pleased to be here with you this evening. Um, a special thanks to Rosemary, to Father Arnie, uh, for making this happen. We had actually tried to have this talk a few months ago when the book first came out, and we couldn't quite get it together, so I'm really pleased that it's happening now. Uh, though I'm not a member of Opus Dei, I'm decidedly a fan. Uh, I, uh, the, the retreats, the mornings of recollection, the meditations, and the spiritual direction that I've received from Opus Dei has really helped me to integrate my work with my faith in a way that nothing else really has. It's the church's down-to-earth, no-nonsense way of making saints, So people often ask me, is your next book going to be How I Stayed Catholic as a Young Professional? And uh, no, probably not, because uh, I think it'd be largely the same. Uh, The book is primarily addressed to college students who are in this context, so a lot of my stories from the evening will be about my time in college. But I think that all of these lessons are broadly applicable to people of, of faith living in, say, uh, DC, or as uh, you know, young professionals making their way. So these these are things that I continue to learn more about and to experience in deeper ways in this next phase of my life. And Opus Dei remains uh, an important support for me in that process. So without further ado, put out into the deep. A personal motto of sorts. Uh, this phrase comes from the Gospel of Luke when Jesus calls his first disciples. They've been fishing all night and they caught nothing. So Jesus walks up to them and asks them to try again, this time casting deeper. Uh, I use the phrase often when I'm signing books, so you might see this, uh, if you get a book later, uh, "Duke and Altum." It's, just a, it's a phrase that's really uh, stuck with me, as something that encourages me to pursue theological truths, when I, I find them difficult to invest more in friendships, when I find myself frustrated and to trust God in the face of uncertainty. And there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding Catholic life in the secular world right now, uh, especially for students and young professionals. You wonder, will I be able to find people who share my values? Are people, are, go- are people going to think that I'm prejudiced or ridiculous because of the things that I believe? Am I going to miss out on what this world has to offer uh, because I'm serious about my faith? parents likewise worry, are my kids going to lose their faith? Are they going to make the most of the opportunities that they've been given? Are they going to have friends and be happy and succeed? So I wrote How I Stayed Catholic at Harvard to address some of these concerns. Um, It's a roadmap. It's using my life as an example. Not always a positive example, actually. I think if you read the book, you see that a lot of the things were um, things that I actually didn't do very well or didn't understand very well and came to understand in a different way. So with that in mind, I'd like to call your attention to three points. The first is that the most important parts of the college experience came to me precisely because of my faith and never in spite of it. The second is that no matter where you send your kids to school or where you go to school or where you work, there will be opportunities for you to grow in your faith. And then finally, each and every one of us is called to be a saint. So uh, to my first point, that you can stay Catholic no matter where you go to school. Um, No, that was not my first point. My first point is that it's not going to take away from your experience. So if you think about what the college experience is, um, and just sort of call to mind um, what that entails, I think that the most important thing that people talk about is lifelong friendship. So you make your best friends in college, right? And this was especially true for me because of my faith. I met my co- my college roommate. Ultimately, um, many of my close friends uh, came from going to mass every morning together. Um, so anyway, all we these people who went to mass together became like this little family. And even though we didn't have a lot else in common, um, we had different majors and different extracurricular interests, we kind of came together in the morning. We'd pray, we'd have breakfast, and then we'd go our separate ways. And it my faith became this like anchor and community for me at college in a way that a lot of other people who weren't involved with their faith didn't experience. Um, when I think of the college experience, I also think of academics who are at the top of their game. And there was this one professor who comes to mind who was a hotshot classics professor. He was the kind of guy who would give a lecture about, a lecture about Latin grammar and everyone would stand up and applaud. <laughs> So, just truly remarkable. And I think that the thing that was most compelling about him was this deep, beautiful, grandfatherly voice he had. And one day I was sitting in church and heard this beautiful voice sort of echoing throughout the sanctuary. And I looked up, and there he was, the great lecturer lecturing. So, we struck up a conversation after Mass, and he became one of my great mentors and close friends. And then finally, when I think of the college experience, I think of having this time when I really decided for the first time what the faith was going to look like in my adult life. My parents weren't there to make me go to Mass. It was completely up to me how I wanted to live this reality. And because of my faith, while a lot of my other peers were worried about, uh, they were having existential crises, they were going out and partying, uh, I always had an idea of what I was at college for. And Opus Dei is very good about saying that succinctly. You're there to be a good student and to be a good friend. I also attribute the most, sort of the most dramatic successes of my life to, uh, to my faith. Um, and the best example I have of this is winning the Rhodes Scholarship. I wouldn't have won if I weren't a Catholic. And that's sort of exactly the opposite of how everyone tells you it works. Um, as I asked uh, recommenders for letters, they told me, yeah, that's great, but, you know, you're never going to win. <laughs> you're super Catholic. And uh, as I, I was being told that the people who won this scholarship were usually the shiny secularists who believed in the New York Times editorial board like we believe in the magisterium of the church. <laughs> so I was very surprised when I was selected as a finalist and invited to interview in California. So I'm going to tell you a bit about the interview process. It's kind of crazy. You, you come in, you do a cocktail party, and then you do two rounds of interviewing. And I was an hour late to the cocktail party um, because I missed that email. And then the second part, the actual interview, you sit down with, like, eight former Rhodes scholars, and they can ask you questions about anything, uh, your life and your personal aims, the news, um, Or, you know, the church's pedophilia scandals, for example. They can ask you anything. So you're on the hot seat, um, and then they reserve the right, after you've interviewed, to interview you a second time. What they do is they take all the candidates, there's like 12 finalists maybe, they stick you in a conference room and they don't let you leave while they deliberate next door. So... I I did the first interview. I left feeling like I'd given it my best effort. They looked at me and they said, we we like you, but look, you're you're really Catholic, and we don't want you to use this scholarship to start encouraging other people to be Catholic. Um, And to be fair, that's exactly what I'm doing. You know, (laughs) that's... Yeah, they guessed it. But I I did the interview. I left. I came back uh, to... Sit in the room with the scholars awaiting the decision. And, you know, we're trying to talk about anything but the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, we're all in this process where, like, we're sitting there until they're gonna come in and be like, you and you win. And everybody cries, and the rest of the people go home. So it's a very psychologically intense process, and we're trying to talk about anything but the scholarship. So one thing leads to another. We get talking about abortion, as one does. <laughs> Uh, me versus the room about abortion. So I end up um, getting called back for a second interview in the middle of all of this discussion. And my, uh, the other applicants were like, her? Like, why, why are they interviewing the pro-life girl again? That's really crazy. Um, but I went and I did the, the second part. So they sit me in the hot seat again, the former a road scholars, and they go, OK, you're on President Bush's bioethics commission. It's the year 2000, and you need to make a decision about embryonic stem cell research. What do you say? And this was a really tough moment. I mean, I really wish it was just so natural to say, no, that's wrong. <laughs> but, for, but I had to think about it, because this was the thing I had most wanted in my entire life. And uh, if I told them that I was against it, then they would think that I was hindering legitimate medical research. Um, on the other hand, if I won and I had lied, then you know I didn't win as me, and that would have been a problem too. And I, I just I think there was a lot of grace in that moment because I was able to look at them and say, okay, you know I was just having a conversation in the other room about uh, the dignity of human life since conception, and uh, this is this is the church would say that you cannot have embryonic stem cell research; it is not in keeping with human dignity. So I told them that they were sort of uh, inscrutable, and I left. They came in uh, a few minutes later. Me and someone else were chosen, and everybody cried. <laughs> so I guess I, I, I tell this story, um, you know, not because like, oh, if you're faithful to Jesus, you're going to win Rhodes scholarships. Um, you know, I realize that it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes it does, but. Uh, I think sometimes, actually, we're called to to great failure as Christians. Um, Mother Teresa famously said, I wasn't put here to be successful, I was put here to be faithful. But there's a story that really stands out in my mind. I just reread G.K. Chesterton's biography of Francis, and he explains what made uh, St. Francis a saint. So what happened was Francis was called Uh, He had this vision of God telling him to rebuild a local church that was in ruins. And Francis sprang into action. Before he sort of even realized what he was doing, he had stolen materials to help build this church and was publicly embarrassed. He had, like, stolen from his dad, and his dad got super litigious about it. Um, And this was the fight that led to that dramatic moment where Francis tore off all his clothes in public and ran into the middle of the woods and became St. Francis. But uh, the point that he, he went into this really deep depression because he failed to build this church properly. Um, and he went into this, like, just a time of clarification where he realized that actually God was calling me to build something much more important than this church. Um, he was building a saint. So don't worry if you don't win the roads. Uh, scholarships when you're faithful. Um, My second point is that I want to say like Harvard, um, like many of the fiercely secular places in this world, uh, is actually a great place to be Catholic. Um, If you're worried about sending your students to secular universities, um, you should know that losing their faith is not a foregone conclusion, just like keeping your faith at a Catholic school is not a foregone conclusion. Of course, there are a few uh, phenomenal Catholic schools Um, Thomas Aquinas College, uh, Ave Maria, and a few others, and then we all know that there are ones that uh, aren't as conducive to keeping your faith. To me, the defining moment um, of my time at Harvard, when I really learned what an incredible community there was, uh, was in my last week of senior year. It was my final week of finals, so I was like in the library a lot, as you can guess, and I was going from the library back to my dorm through the yard, and a student's poster for all of their different events there. And I saw this poster that had a picture of Satan on it. And it said, we're going to hold a satanic ritual. We're going to steal a, a Eucharist from the local Catholic church and do horrible things to it. Um, you know, Happening next week in the freshman dining hall. Come one, come all. And it, it's like, wow, this is, this is really bad. Even for Harvard, this is bad. So I started uh, seeing who was going to do something about this. And immediately, everyone was sprung into action. There, there were um, everyone from current students to recent alumni started drafting petitions and writing op-eds, um, trying to get meetings with deans uh, and communicate how serious of a violation of our uh, Catholic faith this would be. Now, uh, just as an aside, um, some people object that you shouldn't try to get something like this shut down um, because... Even Satanists have rights to religious freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the caveat here um, was that Harvard's own internal rules of what constitutes religious freedom um, actually impedes you from uh, dishonoring somebody else's religion or their race or you know, gender or whatever. So according to Harvard's own rules, we were sort of able to leverage that um, and get our point across. It's much more complicated, I think, if it were in another context. So anyway, we, our big plan, at least among my friend group, was to get a petition, get media attention and try to get it shut down sort of by popular sentiment. And we got a petition. It went viral on the Internet. It got 100,000 signatures. So instead of studying, I'm like sitting in the library uh, refreshing the petition page and watching people pick up on this, and uh, it, very distracting, very exciting. And then I was, um, I was actually selected to be the person who would bring these petitions to the president of Harvard. So the morning that the event was supposed to go off, we printed out all of the petitions in a stack like this, and I put on a suit, and I got ready to go tell the president of Harvard what I really thought. And uh, she didn't show up to work that day. So there I was, like, standing in the middle of Harvard Yard with this, like, huge stack of petitions, looking like an idiot. And... Uh, that was when the news camera showed up. So actually, <laughs> I ended up looking like I knew what I was doing because I was able to give some interviews throughout the day. And at the end of the day, I got a phone call on my cell phone. Rory, yes? Uh, this is Fox News. Would you like to get in the black car outside your apartment and be on Greta in 20 minutes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, so I did. Um, and uh, went and gave the interview. Greta kept asking me, so what do you think happened to the Satanists? Where are they? What are they doing? And I said, you know, Greta, I don't know. For some reason, these guys aren't keeping me in the loop about their plans. <laughs> uh, the black car brought me back to Harvard where this uh, holy hour was happening in reparation because the event, we still thought the event was happening. But as the car pulled into the parking lot, it was surrounded by all these people like wearing face makeup and like wearing all black and looking super angry. And it turns out that the Satanist event had been canceled, and so they had nothing better to do than sort of go and stalk the church parking lot. They actually were going to try to break into the church during the holy hour from the basement. So uh, they surrounded the car. Again, I knew what I looked like I knew what I was doing, so they came after me, and they were like threatening me and hissing at me. And fortunately, at the time I was dating this buff Cuban law student who pushed them out of the way. And we made our way up to the holy hour. That was just one of the most, um, y- truly one of the most unambiguous victories I've ever experienced. Um, that uh, this group of weirdos had invited uh, Satanists to come and like, make fun of us at Harvard. And really the result was that thousands of people ended up publicly adoring the Eucharist. Th- um, you know, many, many words and articles were written about it. Um, I think God won that day. So, but the, the point of it really for me was that I hadn't realized how deep the community went at Harvard. We all had our little, you know, squabbles and, and fiefdoms and like differences of opinion about liturgy and, you know, um, so there were all these different clubs and people who weren't necessarily on speaking terms and we all came together uh, around trying to advocate for the Eucharist, like the Eucharist brought us together in a beautiful way that it really hadn't since that crew got together for Mass uh, in the morning's freshman year. Okay, so my final point brings it back to you. You are called to be a saint. What are you doing about it? If you read the forward to my book, you'll see that Peter Kreeft, who's just my hero, by the way, um, I really want to grow up to be him somehow. But uh, he characterizes it as utterly practical, and in a way, it's like the opposite of practical religion. Like, if, if it's not true, it's not practical. But if you are Catholic, then these are some very practical ways to live it. I, I actually I showed the manuscript to another friend of mine, who some of you may know, Michael Novak, last summer, and he says, "This is much too businesslike for a memoir." And I said, "I'm 25 years old. I'm not writing a memoir." Uh, this is a a guidebook for for college students. It uses some of my experiences. But um, when I was actually, it's it's modeled after this book that I picked up at the the co-op at the beginning of my time at Harvard called How to Win at College. And it was just super practical advice about how to uh, live out, how to be a successful student. And so this is like that for Catholics. Um, My hope is that if you're... uh, if you're a student or what, if you know a student, or even if you're just like trying to find ways to live out your faith in small ways, um, saying grace before meals this week or you know, trying to find a spiritual director, or wherever you're at, it's about finding that and then taking a step forward in a way that I think Opus Dei uh, encourages us to very naturally. So in conclusion, there's a reason why I keep coming back to this story of Jesus calling his disciples to put out into the deep. There's a reason why, personally, I keep being drawn back into this story. Um, these guys had been fishing in that same place all night, and Jesus says, go again, same spot. Um, and so what that tells me is that these little mundane, practical, human details that we overlook and we try and we, we, we don't do very well are actually uh, opportunities for us to, to try them again, that same simple thing, and find a whole new meaning Um, and level of depth in our spiritual life from it. It's a lofty ideal, but it needs to be lived in a practical way, a a very human practical action like casting a net into water. It's not just about what the church teaches and the Bible says, as wonderful as those things are. It's about a life to be lived and a relationship with a living person. I want to leave you with a quote from Pope Benedict XVI uh, from the inaugural Mass of his pontificate who took time to address uh, address young people in particular. He said, If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing of what makes life free, beautiful, and great. Do not be afraid of Christ. He takes nothing away, and he gives you everything. When we give ourselves to him, we receive a hundredfold in return. Yes, open, open wide the doors to Christ and you will find true life. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, so we have time for a few questions, uh, Q&A session. Um, I just ask that you raise your hand and I'll hand you the mic. I was just going to say, so what are you doing now for the faith?
1: Oh. Uh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) That, that little phrase at the end makes yeah. it. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, well, so I'm I'm gonna learn how to do this in a professional environment. Um, I'm planning to go and work for a consulting firm in Dallas, and I guess find ways of witnessing to my faith in in that environment. It's it's gonna be different, but in the meantime, um, promoting a book about Catholicism is helping the faith. I <laughs> hope. Yeah. Uh,
2: can you uh, give us a little comparison and contrast between your experience at Harvard and your experience at Oxford, sort of yes. uh, places where there are similar challenges to your faith or places mm-hmm. where there were similar, you know, graces and opportunities to grow in it, and where were they different?
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to rat you out as my friend from Oxford, so <laughs> that, that does, uh, so, uh, uh I, th- I think that one of the really beautiful things about being Catholic at Oxford in particular is that there are so many different orders, um, religious orders that are living there, that and you can sort of tap into those different spiritualities. Um, so at Harvard, the, everything was focused at St. At Paul's, the um, diocese parish. It's wonderful, but there's sort of one charism, whereas in Oxford you can go with the Dominicans or the Benedictines or one kind of Jesuit or another kind of Jesuit or... Um, th- there are just a lot of different opportunities, and I grew a lot from being able to experience uh, people living those different charisms. Well, both are similar in terms of um, just being, you know, secular places where people are. I think actually, so it, I'm going to use your point, like your question, to make another point, which is that um, there are a few different types of challenges to living your faith at a secular university. And one of them is the obvious that people think of, which is, oh, people are living uh, lifestyles that make it difficult to live out your faith. What are you going to do when you get to a college party and people are doing things that you're not allowed to as a Catholic? That's one set of concerns. But since I was pretty sure about my faith going into college and made friends with Catholic people pretty soon after getting there, I wasn't actually in those situations very much. Um... The the challenge that I really experienced was the draw away from the faith in terms of time um, and emotion that all of these other good things were there to pursue. And they are good things, going to all these lectures and joining clubs and uh, getting into your classes. Those are good things, but in order to still grow in your faith, you have to set aside the time to grow in your prayer life and and make time for God anyway. That remains a challenge uh, no matter where you are do you think finding a community of other believers was important?
0: And what would you do if you were, um, like, it happened to me where I was the only person at mass besides the priest?
1: Wow. Um, So I'll take the first part of that question uh, first, which is much easier. Yes, community was so important for me. Um, I really don't know how you do it. If your friends aren't encouraging you to keep growing and praying and you know people who you can vent to or people you can draft petitions with late at night against black masses. It was it was hugely Im- important. Um, and not just having good friends. Having good friends is important too like those individuals you really connect with that encourage you to grow. There's something else about a community where you don't necessarily like everybody involved, but you're all part of the same thing. And so it doesn't really matter whether you like them or not. It's You're all working for each other's good in some really interesting way. Uh, the second part, what do you do when you're the only person at Mass? Well, right, so that there's there is another person there all the time, uh, namely Jesus, right? And that's, a, that, that's the most important uh, communion that, that we have there. But... I don't know. Like convert people, I guess. <laughs> go, go get some more.
2: Hi, um, thank you for your talk. My question uh, has to do with when you mentioned Peter Kreeft
1: as your uh, career goal. Um, what was in, in your experience and the experience of your friends uh, the role of uh, not not just apologetics, but just a kind of uh, some understanding of the faith and ability to deal with the sort of gotcha questions that always come up at any university you ever go to and it often, for people who are, say, faithful Catholics all the way through to high school, but, oh, it's like just a couple things, and then it all comes kind of falling down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got community, got all that, but, yeah, what was that in your experience? That's a great question, um, because th- those moments definitely do come up, and because w- we don't all go with, you know, Peter Crave's knowledge, uh, all of it, you know, packed inside of our heads. I feel like he has an answer for absolutely everything um a super short answer too you'll like ask him alarmingly deep questions and he'll like give you um a very short answer for for students as you're still trying to learn what those answers are and how it all fits together there are two things that are really important the first is trust that the answer does exist somewhere that like in 2000 years um, of history there are going to be people who are smarter than you and smarter than your interlocutors who are, uh, have thought about this question. Like there, There's almost nothing that hasn't been uh, addressed in some way. And then the second thing is having the humility to, to be able to admit when you don't have the answer on the spot to say, I don't know, but I can find an answer. Um, do you mind if we table that? I think that you get in these conversations and it becomes about showing that you're right or showing that you're smarter than <laughs> the other person, and that's not going to, there's just no way for that conversation to end well.
2: Thank you Aurora, for your wonderful talk. Um, I am the Catholic chaplain at American University. And I understand that your book is addressed towards students, uh, particularly. But would you have anything to say to us chaplains at the universities?
1: Oh, that, so much. But um, less, uh, less from experience, obviously. Um, well, first, thank you. Um, we, As students, we really need you. We can't, as great as it is to, to grow all together, we need leadership. And, uh, and priests who are giving us the sacraments to help us nourish our faith, that's um, the greatest gift. Um, somebody, uh, the thing is, somebody asked me this question a couple months ago, and I had a really good answer. And I can't remember what it is the second. Do you mind if we come back to it, if you like, if I can reflect on that, take a couple more, and then address it at the end? Thank you. Do we have time for a couple more? Okay.
0: Hi, I wanted to ask you. I had a young man come to me recently. I'm also an author uh, about a book about a chaplain. And he was just accepted at Notre Dame, but also some other fine schools, such as Princeton and Boston College, and was debating which one he might want to attend. If he was going to ask you advice about what the challenges were, and I brought up the challenge of trying to do something at a secular university, if you're Catholic, mm-hmm. and really get ensconced with the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I told him I thought he had a big advantage because he was outgoing, seemed very friendly. I just met him. Mm-hmm. He was charming. So I thought he would do well either place. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who's debating, and probably you have a lot of people in your mar- target market for your book who are debating or their parents are helping to guide them, what would you say, knowing your experience and probably having compared to many people who have gone to schools that are religious?
1: hmm yeah, that's, uh, that's a question that comes up a lot, and it's an important one, that um, it depends on your temperament, really. So, um, I th- kind of thrive um, being that person who disagrees with everyone in the room. Um, I, I don't mind that whatsoever, and in fact, like, find it intellectually interesting and find that energizing. So, feeling like I was one of the barbarians outside the gate or one of the co-conspirators, was something that I found very uh, rewarding in my time at school. But not everybody is that way. Some people uh, get in that situation and shut down or feel overwhelmed. And actually, what they need is to be in a place where everyone broadly is moving toward the same goals, and they can you know, move with them. It depends on, where, uh, on your temperament. It depends on where you're at in your own faith. I think at different points in my life, I would have ben- benefited from different kinds of communities. Um, So unfortunately, you can't make a a declarative statement on it, other than to say that I think in very few situations it's the wrong answer to go to a really good Catholic school. Um, You're taking a risk when you go to a secular school um, in a way that you aren't when you go to somewhere like um, TAC or Ave Maria.
2: Aurora, thank you for your talk and uh, your witness. Um, In light of your book being named How I Stayed, Catholic at Harvard. Um, Do you potentially have a story to share about someone who could possibly write the book, How I Became Catholic at Harvard, or Mm. a place like Oxford? And would you say they were most um, witnessed to by knowing you for several years, or a big event that happened in a short amount of time like the activism around a Satanist mass?
1: Hmm. What a beautiful question, and I think that most of my, I'm thinking of my three closest friends in college, um, they all became more Catholic as time went on. So they didn't, they didn't actually convert. I know a few people who did enter the church, um, all of whom were Protestant. I don't think I, any, I personally knew anyone that went from secular to Catholic in their time at Harvard. Um, but th- there was a kind of, going into this sort of really intense environment does show you uh, what's important to you, and in that way, it can be very clarifying. Um, if you end up being the person in the dining hall, you know you're having a conversation with friends, and something comes up about, say, abortion, and you say, "I've, um, I've got to be the one at the table now that has the, the different opinion." Um, that does clarify things for a lot of people, um, and you know that's just that's one example. Those moments happen all the time throughout your college experience. What do you really believe? Uh, and so for for one of my one of my friends, it was like starting to come to daily mass. For another one, it was getting involved with uh, the Knights of Columbus, which is a, it, it, I know usually they're like the guys that like hand out Tootsie Rolls at parishes, but these, this was like kind of a frat. Um, and then, um, yeah, so, and, and then another one uh, was, sort of high church Lutheran and, and became Catholic. But it, it seems to be something that naturally happens as people think about um, what is... Uh, it, people kind of naturally become Catholic as they think about, well, what is the most intellectual form of, of Christianity or the one that has like sort of the deepest intellectual traditions that I can draw on to answer some of these challenges? I, I, I think you'd have a hard time pointing to another Christian tradition that has... The same kind of resources and deep roots to answer the questions that come up at Harvard. My question is: Do you have any favorite resources that you go to um, when
0: you say I'll get back to you on that question?
1: Uh, Peter Crafft <laughs> uh, is a is a huge one for me, but it, but he really is. He's written like seventy uh, something books, I think. So most most things. Um, I got my master's degree in medieval theology, so. Uh, I also do a lot of Aquinas digging. Aquinas tends to have written about almost everything you can imagine, and his answers are usually pretty good. Uh, There are a couple times I I did my, I formed my whole master's um, around finding a point of disagreement with Aquinas, sort of being so excited that there was one thing uh, that I was able to pursue it for like a year, Um, but Aquinas would be the the main person I'd point to, and uh, the part of the reason why someone like Peter Craft or Scott Hahn is so good is that they take material from people like Aquinas and then uh, make it accessible for people who don't study philosophy or theology.
2: Thank you very much for your comments. I'll, I'll follow up on the chaplain's question. I am a parent. Um, my experience was, like many people, when I went off to school I kind of took my faith and thought, hey this is pretty cool, I'm on my own. And I took my faith and I packed it away in my box of agnosticism, figuring I could pull it out later on, you know. (coughs) So that didn't work out so well. Hmm. But I did come back to the church, and I I decided I wanted to raise my kids not to go through that. And so I thought I was doing the best job that I could. They went off to school, and they followed in their father's footsteps. So now what I got left is maybe I'll be around long enough to influence my grandkids. Hmm. Um, If you have comments or you have suggestions for parents, Mm-hmm. those who are trying to do the right thing to prepare their children or you know if they have influence on their grandchildren mm-hmm. what are the sort of things that that work one of the things I hear you say is uh, encourage them or find a way to put them into an environment with uh, a social group that mm-hmm. is supportive of of that faith mm-hmm. um, and is that something that you experienced from your parents w- what did they do or not do that might have had an influence on on making this the right experience for you Mm
1: -hmm. lots of good questions uh there the the first what can you do as a parent or grandparent to encourage your kids to keep the faith um that one's simple it might not be easy but you have to be a saint uh you have to you have to actually live it because there was nothing that drove my uh away from the church more than um, feeling like the people who are supposed to model the faith were hypocritical or inauthentic Um, and you know your kids know like you know it's it's like um, it's like telling them not to smoke right Mm -hmm. and then like sneaking out for a cigarette like they they see that um, and they respond to it they they, uh, move away from from it because they can't they 're going to look at you and they, they can 't stand to think that you're actually wrong or like living in a way that 's unhealthy, so instead, like the more natural conclusion is actually well, this you know if mom and dad aren't living it, then it doesn't matter um, and then, oh, what my parents did, yeah, what my parents did, so my dad taught me uh, from the Baltimore Catechism from the time I was a child, so that 's like the really intense old one. <laughs> Um, where you have to memorize questions and answers, and uh, he read he read tests from the Bible, um, and he didn't skip over the tough stories. So I remember particularly uh, being small and him reading the story of Jephthah. Um, so this Old Testament story where the uh, where the father uh, agrees to, to give God whatever he wants if he has victory in battle, and then the uh, and then he gets victory in battle and. Well, he agrees to give God the first thing he sees, like, when he gets back, to sacrifice. The first thing he sees when he gets back, he sees his daughter. Uh, and that is a really tough story. Um, as a child, like, having my, having my dad, like, say this to me, too, um, really tough. And he never shied away from it, though. What he did was he said, look, there are things in this faith that are beyond you and where you're at right now. And we're not going to adjust them Um or water them down to be where you're at, you're going to have to grow to get where where it's actually at. And that attitude just influenced how I approached my faith, because there's still obviously things that are beyond me, but I hold them as some, something that I have to change to respond to and grow, instead of things that I can change to suit my own feelings. So that would be one approach. Um, I'd like to return to the, the chaplain uh, question really quickly. Um, and just say that one one thing that's really difficult about being a, a chaplain for young people, I think is figuring out what what they need instead of coming up with a, a sort of position um, on how you're going to handle students. and I, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but some people th- they want to have a disposition of mercy, so anybody who comes to them is going to experience um, a word of mercy, and that, the, that's good. And some of them are going to be more um, oriented toward truth. And, and someone who comes to them with a problem, you know, they're going to get the truth. Well, people need different things. Um, and you know, the, the Holy Spirit can kind of tell you. But I think one of the greatest challenges and one of the things we really have to pray for our chaplains about is being able to discern who needs what and then having the humility to just kind of be uh, what people need. On that individual basis that's that's a really beautiful thing that that you can do for us
2: great thank you it's been a great talk tonight Um, do you ever see a danger uh with some of your co-religionists though in occasionally staying in in attempting to stay catholic at a secular university or in a secular context uh that they kind of hold themselves up within Sort of a, a mighty Catholic fortress um, where they're only reading Peter Kreeft and only interacting with their their fellow Catholics mm-hmm. uh, and not maybe reading who knows Christopher Hitchens or David Hume or whoever. Yeah. Uh, what can we you know what do you, what are your thoughts in general about that potential issue?
1: It, it's a it's a huge problem and uh, you know one that I'm not going to rule myself out of. Um, that that's something I actively try to think about. Um, the I think the greater danger, right, is um, is getting sucked into a secular way of, of thinking, when, given that the, the culture is so overwhelmingly secular. But that doesn't mean that we can't, uh, that, that as lay people, right, we have a special vocation to, um, to know about the culture and to witness to it where it's at. So um, I've spent a, a decent amount of time now with... Um, the Nashville Dominicans. I really like them. They have just the most beautiful way of life, and um, in hearing about their postulancy, they they like take the, the, their little postulants. You can't like read fiction, you can't uh, you know watch TV or email or like talk to anybody else. And it's this very intense time of like formation where you you die to the world, right? Um, and some Catholics are already kind of living that right without. Um, having to without having to without being called to that particular vocation i think as lay people we have the responsibility to continue engaging with the culture in in ways that are intentional and and not self-harmful but in ways that recognize our special vocation anyway and i know okay vocation gets thrown around a lot but we're just gonna uh we're just gonna take it as a given term
0: thanks for a great talk by the way I'm just curious how you think your faith will help you in your new career.
1: Well, so one, one of the the things that... Um, uh, my dad has been, like, one of the huge models for me in how to live your faith in a, a career. I'm uh, looking at going into business, and he he's a businessman, and he's always um, thought of business as, as a way um, of, of living out his faith in multiple dimensions. So... Um, the business does good for people at at sort of multiple levels, Um, giving people gainful employment, making things that people actually need, um, taking the benefits and providing for his family, providing for other people that uh, aren't able to provide for themselves. So, and and he also, um, you know, that's a a very Opus day thing to do, but he also, um, you know, offers his prayer before he goes into meetings, he prays. Um, So he's been a very good model of how to, integrate the two very well and to think about work as something that helps you to grow in your spiritual life, not as sort of something that you have to do like when you aren't in the chapel or, um, or something like that. that, that work really is and can be prayer and should be prayer. I hope I can live that well. Another thing that uh, my dad has really taught me is, is over time, um, and both my parents really, over time they've gotten to be more happy people uh, more flourishing, better at what they do, better parents, and I really think that that's what the faith does for you. Um, if you're if you're in the secular world and you're aging, the, it, there's kind of a tragedy about it, like fewer opportunities, and oh, you're, you know, your your body's breaking down, and, and people are moving different places, and um, all of these things kind of are tragic without a a view of the faith to anchor you. There's that existential knowledge that um, as I get toward the end of my life, uh, you know, and and ascend in my career, that all of these things are oriented toward um, toward a good thing, which is closeness with God. I've been extremely fortunate to see that lived out. Guys are asking good questions. I appreciate them. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So thank you. Much for joining us tonight. One, sorry, one just additional point about the book is I found out today that it's sold out on Amazon. So get it, get it while you can. It's uh, it's going to a reprinting, but if you want one in the next sort of few weeks, then this is the place to get it.